The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Rising to the Occasion, Improving Outcomes in Leukemia, Lymphoma, and Multiple Myeloma with CAR T-Cell Therapy in Community Practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NMF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. It's our pleasure to have you join us for the event we're going to do tonight called Rising to the Occasion, Improving Outcomes in Leukemia, Lymphoma, and Multiple Myeloma with CAR T-Cell Therapy in Community Practice. Tonight, um, we're joined by expert panel, and then I'm also up here as well. Um, we have uh, Dr. Shannon Maud, who's going to teach us everything we need to know about uh, uh, leukemia in children um, in CAR T-cells, and Dr. Karina Patel, who's going to teach us everything we need to know about multiple myeloma in CAR T-cells. And I'll try and do my best for lymphomas to teach you what you need to know about CAR T-cells. All right, so without further ado, let's dive in for understanding CAR T-cell therapy as a new cornerstone of hemologic cancer care. To briefly kick it off, many of you may know some of this already, but just to make sure we're all level set on our introduction, what is a CAR T-cell and how is it made? Well, first of all, CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. If you remember your Greek chimera is a fusion animal, a, a lion and an eagle or some weird mythologic creature where you're fusing two things together to form a Frankenstein-like hybrid, that's what we're doing with a chimeric antigen receptor. And on the outside, the cartoon on the left side of your screen, on the outside of the cell, we have a, effectively a, a, an antibody binding domain, an SCFV, which binds to the target antigen, the hinge domain going through the cell membrane, and on the inside, usually we have a co-stimulatory domain, CD28 or 41BB, which then signals to CB3 zeta to effectively complete the T-cell receptor-like signaling. This is performed usually from a patient's own blood cells, autologous, and the patients undergo a procedure to collect their T-cells, often referred to as apheresis. These T-cells are then magically whisked away to the manufacturing facility, where through various mechanisms they're transfected, usually through a viral uh, medium, to have the new uh, chimeric antigen receptor expressed on their surface. It's a complicated process, and several weeks later, the T-cells are sent back to the hospital. Patients undergo usually chemotherapy ahead of time to try and get their bodies ready for the CAR T-cells, and then the cells are reinfused. And we'll talk a little bit about that process tonight in terms of the data that supports why we go through this very complicated process and convince you all that this is actually worth all the hassle to do this. This is not a pipe dream that's sort of a neat thing that we're talking about in coming attractions. This is reality. And this slide is basically a way for us to level set what's already available today in terms of FDA-approved therapies. So each of the bullet points on here is an indication that's gone through the FDA regulatory process and has reached approval. And we see on the left-hand side, we've got CD19-targeted therapies. And then the bottom, we've got BCMA-targeted therapies. So going through one by one, we've got axicaptogene silucil, which is approved for adults with relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma, refractory to first-line chemotherapy, or has relapsed within 12 months of first-line chemotherapy. That's a hot off the presses. That's approved as of about a month and a half ago. Um, more uh, distant approvals in the past, we've had relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma after two or more lines of therapy, including large B-cell lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as well as uh, follicular lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic therapy. Brexicaptogene autolucil is a, a product specifically for ALL and for MCL, approved for adults uh, with both of those diseases. 
Lysacabagene marilusol is approved for adults with relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma. Currently, after two or more lines of therapy, but we're anticipating potentially that moving into after first-line therapy, maybe later this summer. Not yet approved in that setting, but that may come soon. And then tisogen leclusol is approved for patients with up to age 25 with B-cell precursor ALL that's refractory or in second line or later relapse. Adults with relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma after two or more lines of systemic therapy. And then follicular, just recently approved after two or more lines of systemic therapy. For BCMA, we have Idacel, which is approved for patients after more than uh, four or more lines of therapy, and Siltacel, which is approved for patients after four or more lines of therapy. What are the toxicities? Some of us have heard these terms before, but to dig in more depth, CRS and neurologic events. These are often talked about when you see an abstract or a presentation for a clinical trial. CRS stands for cytokine release syndrome. And this is almost a sepsis-like event. It kind of sounds like sepsis. CRS sounds like sepsis. It's effectively an overreaction of the immune cells to a stimulus, kind of like if you get an overwhelming infection. So for CRS, it's the CAR T cells kicking off this cascade Patients often will have fever, hypotension, tachycardia. They look sick, and often they're in the hospital. And it can be serious with um, arrhythmias, organ failure, and potentially even requiring uh, pressors in the ICU. Neurologic events, sometimes these are referred to as ICANs, immune effector cell-associated neurologic syndrome, but often referred to just as neurologic events. And these can range from being a little bit confused all the way to tonic-clonic seizures um, and, and can be quite significant. On the left-hand side, we see the general timeline for this. This is not something that occurs randomly at any time point. Generally, it's predictable for most of the CAR T-cell products, with CRS often occurring in the first few days and then resolving by about a week after therapy. Neurologic events can have two peaks, sometimes in the first week, but often it's a little bit delayed and usually will resolve within the first two weeks. Generally, these are all resolvable toxicities um, in terms of things that we get worried about. And the timeline there of zero through 28 days is, is important because usually that's when we get our first restage of the patients. So patients are typically at the CAR T-cell center for all of this time frame. How to manage CRS. This is a complicated slide, and I'll ask you to come back to this one later. We won't go through every single point here. But basically, we have a grading system that we use to uh, classify CRS specifically as a distinct entity which ranges from fever all the way to mechanical ventilation um, with grade four toxicities. Usually observation or supportive care can be utilized, but sometimes tocilizumab, the anti-IL-6 antibody, is used. If that's not sufficient, we often will add steroids, dexamethasone, or if dexamethasone is not controlling CRS, sometimes very high-dose methylprednisolone might be required to try and arrest this CAR T-cell-mediated cytokine release syndrome. For neurologic toxicity, this ranges from mild confusion and dysphagia all the way up to life-threatening confusion, somnolence, seizures, requiring perhaps even mechanical ventilation to protect the airway. Usually treatment is supportive, meaning patients are just watched and told this will resolve. However, if things continue or if they worsen, sometimes steroids will be indicated to try and slow down the CAR T-cell-mediated process. And with that, let's move into the seminar and the tumor board sessions. And we will hand it over to talk about CAR T-cell for patients with ALL. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to be talking to you about um, how CAR T-cell therapy is used now as a standard of care for patients with ALL. And focusing a lot on PEDS because um, for a long time, 
we really were only in the pediatric setting in ALL in terms of having availability of um, CAR T cells. So start off with a case um, to kind of set the stage of of where uh, this therapy is currently used uh, in the treatment landscape. So this is a five-year-old boy with relapsed ALL, initially diagnosed with KMT2A, rearranged B ALL, um, which is a a high-risk cytogenetic marker um, in ALL, particularly for the very young patients. So in infancy, in less than 12 months, these patients are at extremely high risk of relapse, and their outcomes are quite poor. This child was diagnosed at 18 months, a second relapse, and this was pretty early um, post-transplant, about four months um, after stem cell transplant. So this is the the treatment landscape that um, CAR T cells came into um, in pediatric ALL. So if we look at this uh, graph on the left here, this is overall um, survival for patients with newly diagnosed ALL in pediatrics. And it really is um, a testament to what trials of multi-agent chemotherapy can do in this disease with really high survival rates for the majority of children at first presentation, newly diagnosed ALL. But unfortunately, um, what we've seen is that's primarily been from a reduction in in relapse risk. But in patients who relapse, and uh, particularly in those in second relapse, that survival curve is basically the inverse, um, with less than a 10% chance of um, EFS long term. So this is uh, the situation that this patient was in. So where are we now with um, CAR T-cell constructs in ALL? Well, what is listed at the top here is tisagen leclucel, um, which was studied as, as CTL-019, which was the first CAR T-cell approved, and the first approval was actually in pediatrics, which is amazing for us as pediatricians. It never happens that way. Um, but I think it, it shows that um, we really can learn a lot from children, particularly in these newer therapies that have um, risk of significant toxicities. So this was approved in August of 2017. We're almost at five years now for relapse refractory BALL in um, pediatric and young adult patients up to the age of 25. Now, more recently, we fortunately have um, availability in adult patients as well, which for a long time was lacking with the approval of Brexucel in October of last year. Um, So this also in the relapse refractory setting, um, but in the adult population. There are also other CAR T-cell products that are um, under investigation. Um, The uh, product out of Seattle, um, now known as uh, Lysocell, um, has been through trials both in the academic setting and, and now in the pharma setting in multi-institutional trials. And there are some allogeneic or UCART um, trials that are ongoing as well. So um, I'm going to talk to you about some of the trials that led to these approvals and kind of where we stand right now. So this is the Eliana trial design. This was the phase two trial in pediatric and young adult patients of uh, TISACEL, or CTL-019 as it was known at the time. This was conducted um, in 11 countries. 
and was performed uh, through central manufacturing, um, but uh, patients received their CAR T cells at the individual sites across those countries. Um, they received lymphodepleting chemotherapy prior to infusion, and then a single dose of uh, TISA cell was given. And this was weight-based dosing for those less than 50 kilos, and then a flat dose for 50 kilos um, and above. The primary um, outcome on this trial was overall response rate, um, which included CR and CR within complete count recovery um, at three months. So the way that this um, uh, trial was designed was that the initial assessment was done at day 28, um, but the patient had to maintain remission um, at the next assessment one month later. And so what was looked at was um, how many achieved remission and maintained that uh, by three months. So the primary endpoint, as I mentioned, that CRCRI rate maintained um, by three months was 81% in 75 patients on this trial. And then what I'm showing here is the duration of remission and the EFS and OS. And so what was encouraging here was, of course, this very high response rate in a highly refractory population, but also um, a maintenance of remission for the majority of patients. So relapse-free survival at 12 months was um, just under 60% on this trial. And what we were seeing, of course, this is um, with shorter follow-up, but there appeared to maybe be a plateau that um, the relapses primarily occurred in the first year, and then that kind of leveled off. And compared to what I showed you on that early slide about where we were in this population of um, second relapse or refractory ALL, um, this is really a significant improvement. So this is what led to the FDA approval to cell. Um, some longer-term follow-up outcomes, this was presented um, at ASH by Steve Grepp a couple years ago, showed that this um, really was maintained. He, this is overall survival, but the relapse-free survival actually continued to show uh, that plateau with longer follow-up. Um, so it appears that these um, responses are maintained if, if we can get out beyond that one-year mark, at least in this um, population with highly refractory disease. So next on to the Zuma studies, which studied um, what is now known as Brexacel. This is the um, adult phase 1-2 trial design um, that initially had a dose finding phase and then went on to a phase 2 dose expansion, um, and that ultimately led to the approval in adult ALL. Um, so the data from that trial um, are shown here. This is, these are the initial outcomes um, showing a 71% um, CR rate on that trial and um, showing that really there was a, a high proportion of patients who were able to respond to this and uh, durable responses as well. The, the duration of response is um, not quite as good as we see in pediatric ALL. Um, unfortunately, that's true really across um, ALL studies that um, the outcomes are, are better for children with ALL. But I think in, in this population compared to um, the therapies that would have otherwise been available for this population, it's really remarkable the, the proportion of patients um, that are able to stay in remission. The longer-term follow-up data 
was um, presented in a poster this morning and a poster discussion session um, this afternoon. So you can uh, refer to that, um, really encouraging longer-term data as well. This is um, the pediatric study of Brexicel, Zuma 4. Um, it, this has not been approved in pediatrics yet, and these studies are ongoing. Um, so there was a phase one component, um, which is shown here, um, and then this has been expanded into a phase two component. There are various doses that were studied on this trial and different preparations um, that were used because of some early toxicities that were seen on this, um, and now it's been expanded into the phase two portion. Again, a high CRCRI rate of 78%, with most of those being MRD negative CRs. The majority of patients on um, this trial with this product did tend to go on to a consolidative transplant. And I think um, that is important to think about some of the differences between um, these products. This is a CD28 co-stimulatory domain, and what has generally been seen is that um, this is sort of a, a hotter initial product with really robust expansion early on and deep remissions achieved in a short period of time, but short persistence of the T cells. And what has been seen um, in ALL, particularly in the in the pediatric patients is that it seems that you need longer persistence in order to maintain that remission in ALL. It does not necessarily seem to be true in lymphoma, um, as you'll hear about, but is in ALL. And it, if you compare this to Tisacel, which uses a 4-1-BB co-stimulatory domain, you tend to see a less rapid um, initial expansion, um, but much longer persistence with patients having months or potentially years of persistence of their CAR T cells, so the majority of patients not going on to transplant um, on those trials and with that product. So now on to some of the real-world outcomes, and I'm showing you here real-world outcomes with Tissa cells just because it's been around longer in um, ALL, so it's been approved for nearly five years now. So we're now starting to see some of those real-world outcomes, and I think it's really exciting to see this because um, there was a lot that was unknown um, in the initial uh, field of CAR T-cell. It was not known whether we could do this at more than just an academic institution that manufactured the product right on site, and that was proven to be the case in the trials. But then it certainly wasn't known, you know, when you expand this out into the real world, are we going to see this hold up um, with patients that may not be in as good a shape as the patients who are on trials? And what's been super encouraging is that um, the response rates, um, the safety data, and the long-term remissions have really matched up with what we're seeing on the trials. And I think part of that is that a lot of people are using this earlier on in the uh, relapse setting and not waiting until the patient has been refractory to multiple, multiple agents. Um, and we tend to see that it's safer and has a higher chance of working in that situation. So this is data out of um, CIBMTR that I'm showing on the left here, um, showing the CR rate was in the mid-80, uh, about 85% rate. 
range and um, duration of remission, a 12-month uh, duration of remission was 60%, with median follow-up being right around that range, so um, shorter follow-up so far, but um, really seemed to match up to the trial. And on the, in the graph to the right here, this is also data out of um, CIBMCR, real-world data showing that um, there were not differences if you looked by age groups. So we weren't sure if, um, you know, we were going to see or if the reason for the better outcomes was really that we were treating the younger children. And we know that adolescents and, and young adults um, have poor outcomes um, in ALL. But if you break down by less than 18 years old or 18 or greater, um, you actually see um, very similar outcomes. And we have some data out of CHOP that is showing the same thing, if not slightly improved outcomes um, in, the, in the young adult patients. So that's very encouraging to see as well. So I wanted to draw your attention to a few other um, real-world data as well as uh, as some data from clinical trials looking at um, what can we say about um, CAR T-cell therapy across the population and are we really selecting for a very narrow group of patients who have access to these highly specialized therapies um, or is this something that we can really achieve equitable um, access to? And this was actually out of our group at CHOP looking at the um, impact of socioeconomic status on um, CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. And um, show that if you looked at sort of a, a neighborhood level to look at household poverty, there was no association with inferior survival outcomes. Um, but we still um, have seen and worry that in um, patients from lower socioeconomic status who have more refractory disease, high-risk disease, um, with uh, high tumor burden, it, it may be harder for them to access this therapy, um, which is something you might expect when um, this is really a, um, a highly specialized therapy that you have to go potentially across the country to these centers. Now, this was in the era of when it was just in clinical trials and there were very limited places where you could get access to it. We hope certainly that that's going to improve as more centers have access now in the real-world setting, in the setting of having a commercial product. Um, I wanted to also draw your attention to um, a presentation on Monday. This is going to be in a poster discussion session as well, looking at outcomes of Hispanic patients um, it, at, um, treated with Tisagen Leclucel in the real-world setting. Um, and spoiler alert, um, you know, showing that the, this may be actually very comparable, and that's encouraging to see because we see in the pediatric ALL um, landscape that uh, Hispanic patients tend to have higher risk of uh, relapse, higher risk disease, um, higher risk cytogenetic factors. So we hope that this can potentially overcome that. So to go back to the case and just sort of uh, talk to you about where are we going from here. Um, so again, back to this five-year-old patient, um, he was responsive to the reinduction chemotherapy um, at that relapse. So um, when he came to us for um, Tisacel, his bone marrow was MRD negative, um, but he did have some blast detected in his CSF. 
Um, he received uh, CTL-019, had grade 2 CRS, which was um, easily managed, and was in an MRG negative and a CNS negative remission at day 28, despite not receiving any other CNS-directed therapy besides the T-cell infusion. Um, he did then have B-cell recovery at five months, and that's an indicator to us that the CAR T-cells are no longer functional or no longer present at all um, in the patient. And we worry if that happens less than six months, that that may be a higher risk of uh, relapse if we're, if we're not seeing continued surveillance. So this patient received a reinfusion and remains in remission now um, more than five years out. So why do we worry about B-cell recovery? Well, there's been some studies looking at the impact of B-cell recovery. So this is a study um, using the data from Eliana, the registration trial, as well as Ensign, another U.S.-based multi-site um, trial that preceded Eliana, looking at B-cell recovery and its impact on um, relapse risk. And what is shown here in this graph is that depending on the time to um, B-cell recovery with the earlier time being shown down here, there's a much higher risk of relapse compared to patients who have continued B-cell aplasia or B-cell aplasia lasting out to a year or more. And so this does seem to be uh, a marker of um, relapse risk. What was also looked at at this study was looking at um, doing MRD through high-throughput sequencing, deep sequencing, looking at the IGH um, rearrangements. And what was shown is that patients who have uh, positivity for NGS-MRD at three months after infusion um, almost universally go on to relapse versus those who um, are negative um, have a much better chance of staying in remission long-term. So what can we do about that? Can we prevent relapse? There are various strategies that are being used. I mentioned that that um, patient was reinfused. We and others have been doing that. Um, in addition, there are some newer products that are being studied um, to try to overcome that short persistence. Um, we have a humanized CD19 car that's being studied. Um, the group at Seattle is using um, what they call TAPC, or a T-cell that's engineered at the same time as the CAR T-cells that express the CD19 to sort of give that antigen to drive um, T-cell expansion and persistence. And so there are several studies um, that are ongoing, sort of looking at ways to overcome relapse um, or potentially prevent the risk of relapse. And that includes um, studies for short persistence, as well as studies to overcome antigen escape with CD19 negative disease. And so... Um, I will end there in the interest of time um, with some take-home thoughts. I think we, where we stand right now is that um, this therapy has really been transformative in relapse refractory BILL. It's now being moved in earlier lines of therapy um, in the research setting, but there are still some critical needs. How can we predict relapse and how can we prevent it? And can we use some combination approaches to overcome that relapse? Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Maud. I, I think you all um, may have noticed on some of those references, some of the key references, that we have the uh, 
lead author on some of those data. So clearly we've got an opportunity for some questions from the audience. So one question that came through that I think might be relevant, um, it could be looked at in the ALL context, we could talk about this in terms, in terms of myeloma or lymphoma as well. But are there factors at baseline like disease burden or other predictors that might correspond either with risk of toxicities like CRS or with chance of long-term remission? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and I um, didn't have time to show that, but there's there's actually um, very good data that's been reproduced on, on multiple different trials looking at the risk of toxicity and its association with disease burden. Um, and so uh, several groups have found that a higher disease burden having um, in, in various definitions of what that is, um, in the toxicity realm seems to be that um, patients who have an M3 marrow, 25% blast or higher, um, or 50% blast or higher, are at much higher risk of um, serious uh, CRS events. Um, and when I say much higher risk, it's probably a 50% risk versus a patient who's in a morphologic remission, a less than 1% chance of having severe CRS. Um, so as we move this earlier in therapy, I think we can do it much more safely. There's now actually emerging data that there's also an impact on outcome with patients who have, an, and for this, the disease burden cut off maybe closer to 5%. Um, and that's probably because there are not too many patients in the middle. You either have very a packed marrow or sort of low-level disease. And the patients with low-level disease um, have a much better chance of staying in long-term remission versus those um, with uh, high-level disease. It, their chance of relapse-free survival may be more in the 30% range, um, probably reflect of reflecting the very refractory nature of their leukemia. Excellent. Very good. Wonderful. Okay, let's move from the leukemia world into the lymphoma world, and we're going to build on progress with CAR T-cell therapy, focusing on recent breakthroughs for improving patient outcomes in lymphoma. Um, so the practical shape of CAR T-cell therapy in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma Patients are found to be eligible for CAR T-cell therapy, and at the bottom here we have an example. A patient has relapsed um, very soon after first-line therapy or after a stem cell transplant. Um, do not consider CAR in patients with an active infection or with inflammatory diseases. Um, one of the patients on the original study was a patient of mine who had Crohn's disease requiring immune suppressive therapy and had major toxicities. So there are certain patients that CAR T-cell may not be a good option for but those, that, thankfully, are, are rare to have that situation where somebody has a severe contraindication. Patients who are candidates, however, are referred to a specialized center, um, often to get the apheresis and perhaps bridging therapy done to try and hold them while the product is being manufactured. And then as mentioned in, in the previous talks, um, the previous sections, lymphodepletion chemotherapy is often administered. Patients are watched for neurologic toxicity, including um, uh, confusion as much as seizures for CRS, which is fever all the way to hypotension, and are given uh, appropriate therapies for that. Um, and then long-term follow-up. And long-term follow-up is often where patients will go back to the original referring uh, center, and there needs to be a good communication in place between the CAR T-cell center and to the physician who initiated the referral. That is something that patients do go back and should go back to their home oncology center um, for, for long-term follow-up and a partnership with the CAR T-cell center. So to dig in specifically into where we started the journey in third-line therapy and beyond for large B-cell lymphoma, 
If we look at the latest update from the NCCN guidelines earlier this year, anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy is listed as usually the preferred option for patients who are candidates for it, and specifically the three products that are mentioned here on the screen, AxiCell or Axicaptogene Cellulucil, Lysocell or Lysocaptogene Merilucil, and then Tisacell or Tisagen Lacluzil, and we'll go through the pivotal trials that led to these approvals and their listing as preferred options in the NCCN. But other options are out there as well that are not cell therapies and are often considered in folks that either can't get a CAR or don't want to go to a CAR T-cell center. Just to briefly mention these because they're relevant for our patients, Lonkistuximab to serine is a recently approved antibody drug conjugate targeting CD19, as is tafacitimab lenalidomide, tafacitimab being a, a monoclonal antibody targeting CD19. You see there at the top, CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. So we do pay attention to trying to sequence therapies or trying to not go too many times at the same target for potential overlap or loss of antigen. Although to date, we've really not seen any data to suggest that using one of those therapies prior to CAR or post-CAR would necessarily be an issue. So it's a theoretical, but not something that's been proven yet. Bendamustin rituximab polituzumab is often considered as an option. But we highlight here that bendamustine is very lymphotoxic, and it may be very difficult to manufacture a successful and efficacious CAR if a patient's had bendamustine recently. So if somebody might be a candidate for CAR T-cells, usually we would shy away from using bendamustine. And then lastly, Selenexor is an oral XPO1 inhibitor, um, which is uh, used as indicated on your screen. So going into the CAR T-cell constructs, and at the top of this table, we've got listed the pivotal studies which led to the original approvals, Zuma-1 for AxiCell, Juliet for Tisagen Lucul, and Transcend for Lysocaptogene. The doses are slightly different between trials, although you don't pick a dose, you just get the dose back from the manufacturing, so there's no choosing of that, it's just the doses that were administered. Here we talk about, in the second column, relapse after transplant, the patient populations treated on these studies were heavily pretreated, and many of them didn't have relapse post-transplant because they never got to transplant. They were refractory to chemotherapy, which is a pre precursor for going to autologous stem cell transplant. On these trials in Zuma-1, bridging chemotherapy was not allowed, which potentially selects for a patient population that can wait a little bit longer, but we'll show you on some of the upcoming studies. I don't think that's relevant in terms of selecting therapy for our patients we're able to see in the real-world data that bridging chemotherapy can be used for any of these CAR T-cells successfully. But what I want to highlight on the, the second to the bottom line here of the treated versus aphorist, very high delivery of products, meaning that we're able to produce product for the vast, vast, vast majority of patients. For AxiCell in the Zuma-1 trial, it was over 90%. Tisagen like Lucil was slightly lower, um, although manufacturing processes have been changed over time to improve those numbers and lysocaptogene, 85%. So people who were intended for CAR often receive CAR, which is wonderful to see with this complicated manufacturing process. And on the bottom there, we see that lysocaptogene merilucil is the new kid on the block, um, but the other ones are now getting quite mature data, including up to five-year follow-up from the Zuma-1 trial. So going into a clinical case, we have a 67-year-old with a double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, sort of the most aggressive and most chemotherapy refractory disease that we treat in the lymphoma clinic. This patient, unfortunately, has stage 4 disease at diagnosis, which is defined through the MYC and BCL2 rearrangements on fish testing. We treated this patient with a dose-adjusted intensive regimen called R-EPOC, and the patient initially responded. However, four months later, called the clinic and said, I need to come back in. I think I'm in trouble. 
and a biopsy was performed and showed the exact same disease. So this patient had a very early relapse of their disease, which often is uh, concerning for chemotherapy refractory disease. The patient was treated with two cycles of rice salvage chemotherapy, very intensive chemotherapy, and not only does not get stable disease, but actually progresses. That always is quite worrisome when we hit a patient with nuclear bomb chemotherapy and the disease gets worse. All right, so enter into that space axicaptogene silucil. And this was looked at in patients who basically met the criteria I just described of progressing on salvage chemotherapy or relapsing within one year of an autologous stem cell transplant. Highly refractory patient population. And in the long-term follow-up now, which was presented at the ASH meeting um, this past year with five years of follow-up, we're seeing a very impressive plateau that's emerged in this uh, overall survival curve. The objective response rates initially were quite high, 84%, and the complete response rate um, was 58%. Um, very impressive in this heavily pretreated refractory population. And you can see that the overall survival median has still not been reached uh, with the median fall for 27 months. That is a pretty great looking Kaplan-Meier curve compared to what we had before CAR T-cells, which looked a lot like we just saw in the leukemia uh, refractory group, which was a straight line down and maybe 10 to 20% of people prior to CAR T-cells doing well in this refractory population. Looking at tisogen leclusol, Juliet was the pivotal study. And here we see the patients who got a CR, the top two bars, did very well with long-term benefit. Looking at the overall population, there's an initial drop-off of patients who did not achieve a durable response. But again, a plateau emerging, which appears to be quite durable now with long-term follow-up. In the Lancet Oncology last year, a long-term follow-up paper was published showing that these data are holding. So we think that we're likely curing patients with these two CAR T-cell therapies. Um, and the real-world data, which we'll show a slide in a few minutes, shows that both of these therapies are looking the same off of clinical trials. And then the new kid on the block, as mentioned, Transcend um, was uh, led to lysocaptogene Marilusol's approval last year. Um, also has had updated data. Dr. Jeremy Abramson presented at ASH 2021, some longer-term follow-up, and showed the same story, that these initial great responses, 73% overall response, CR rate of 53% in a refractory patient population is durable, with a median duration of response of 23 months. Like many cancers, getting a complete response usually is a good thing, and we see that those patients tend to have a much more durable response than those who have partial response Although some patients with partial response do eventually convert over to CR. So for all three of these CAR T-cell products, a PR at the first scan often is something we try to leave alone because about a third of patients with a PR will convert over to get a CR. Okay, what about real-world data? We heard about some real-world data for ALL. For uh, lymphomas, we have had a number of publications looking at AxiCell and T-cell outside of a clinical trial. So real world is used kind of with air quotes around it because these are still at highly specialized cell therapy centers. This is not done at an average um, breast cancer, lung cancer, GI cancer, and a little bit of leukemia or lymphoma clinic. This is still something that's done at a group that knows what they're doing with cell therapies. However, outside of trials, often we see a loss of response or a loss of signal. Not so in the uh, AxiCell and T-cell data, which look very similar to what we saw on the clinical trials. So our colleague at MD Anderson, Dr. Loretta Nastapol, published in JCO. Karen Jacobson published uh, a similar data set, basically showing almost identical data to Zuma-1 in relatively large uh, real-world data sets, including patients who would not have qualified for the clinical trial due to comorbidities. So we've relaxed some of our criteria for who's a candidate for CAR T-cell based upon 
these great outcomes in patients that we see in clinic who are not Olympic athletes. For TISA cell, we're seeing the same story. Um, this is a similar data set that we just saw um, looking at some registry data, um, but shows a plateau which is emerging, um, which looks very similar to what we saw in the Juliet study. So very reassuring to see outside of trials, CAR T cells are still behaving in the way that we would like them to. But CAR T cells, even with these great real-world data, these are only in patients who receive the CAR T cell. And unfortunately, a lot of patients are not able to receive CAR T cell. And we received a question, which we heard in the ALL section about social factors um, that are, are being looked at, looking at poverty within the household. There are factors for, for folks that are not even that dire, but just basically getting to the center, traveling to go to a CAR T cell center, sometimes too much. So socioeconomic barriers, including traveling and having housing for four weeks near a center. Manufacturing failure is relatively rare, although as I showed in the previous slides, it's not 100% to make product. Infections, especially in the COVID era, can sometimes be disruptive and limit patients' ability to receive a CAR T cell. And then if patients don't have their disease hold, it takes three or four weeks to make a CAR T cell product. And if they don't respond to bridging therapy, sometimes they may be too sick to receive the product when it actually arrives. So work is ongoing uh, for all three of our talks tonight to try and help mitigate some of these barriers and help more and more patients receive this life-saving therapy of CAR T cell. What is next for CAR T cell therapy? And there was a question earlier about stem cell transplant and CAR T cell. You were reading our minds because we're gonna talk directly about a head-to-head -head comparison for what has been the standard of care uh, for second line large B cell lymphoma for a quarter century, which is high dose chemo. And if you respond going on to autologous transplant, um, with the great data in third line, the CAR T-cell teams said, why don't we take on the, the reigning champ of stem cell transplant and see if we can't do better. And so we now have three large randomized phase three studies which reported out at the ASH meeting, two of which have been published, and the other one is coming any day now to show the data sets of head-to-head -head comparison of chemotherapy and stem cell transplant. And these are the three studies. Zuma 7 looking at AxiCell, Belinda looking at TISA cell, and Transform looking at Lysacell. All of these studies had very similar designs in that they were targeting patients who had one line of therapy and either were primary refractory, which generally meant never achieving a complete response, or relapsing within the first 12 months. Generally, that does not go well with getting salvage chemotherapy. If you're refractory to line number one, odds are you may be refractory to line number two. All three of these studies had primary endpoint of event-free survival. And this is probably as close as we're gonna to get to head-to-head -to -head comparison of the three CAR T-cell products by having a similar-ish control arm from these phase three studies. So Zuma 7, looking at AxiCell, was presented in the plenary session at the ASH meeting in 2021 and then published a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, which shows a pretty striking curve between the two. We don't really need a p-value to see that strong difference in event-free survival with the top curve being AxiCell and the bottom curve being standard of care with the hazard ratio of 0.4 favoring AxiCell. The median event-free survival, eight months versus two months, doubling of the complete response rate um, this was a home run showing that AxiCell was better than salvage chemotherapy followed by autologous transplant in this refractory patient population. To date, overall survival is not different. There's a numerical trend towards an overall survival benefit, which is still maturing. So we're still yet to see if that is something that's going to show an overall survival benefit. On the trial, crossover was not allowed. However, about half of the patients on the transplant arm actually received a cell therapy. 
which is way more than people have received a transplant. About a third of patients receive transplant on the standard of care arm because of lack of response to chemo. So there's a heavy crossover outside of the study on this trial, which may influence overall survival. On the other side of the coin, Belinda was also reported at the ASH 2021 meeting um, and was also published in the New England Journal a few, a few months ago, but shows a very different curve. This is the event-free survival curve uh, for Tisagen Leclusol compared with standard of care chemotherapy. You do need a p-value to see that this is not significant. It, this is obviously the opposite of what we saw in the previous one. Um, no difference at all. This is something where it was a very strong and disappointing result showing that the CAR T-cell story is not all CAR T-cells are created equal. There may be differences in terms of the efficacy, um, but in terms of structural differences within the trial, this trial did have some structural advantages favoring the stem cell transplant. Patients were required to receive two lines of salvage chemotherapy before they could receive a crossover, and a number of patients responded to their second salvage chemotherapy, um, therefore going to transplant where they may not have received it otherwise. Um, the time to deliver tisagen like Lucille in the trial was uh, more than two months, or nearly two months, which takes a long time uh, for patients with a highly refractory aggressive disease, and many patients had progressive disease and were quite sick with their lymphoma at the time of infusion. So this is a negative study. However, there were some factors within this that could have potentially explained, but at the end of the day, we can't conclude that there's any difference between tisagen like Lucille and standard care and second line. And then back to the good news part of the CAR T-cell story, the lysocell phase three study was reported as a pre-planned inter-analysis, very short follow-up. This was only six months of follow-up versus Zuma 7's 24 months of follow-up presented at the meeting, uh, the ASH meeting in 2021. However, these curves look a lot like Zuma 7, where there's a huge difference, and the, the median um, survival in this early data cut, event-free survival was 10 months for lysocell versus two months for the standard of care. So, and many of the events had already happened at the time points that are reported. So these are likely to be stable, but the publication is supposed to be coming any day now. So stay tuned for this potentially being another option in second line. But as of today, this is not approved for second line therapy. So we published a review paper in blood a few weeks ago, uh, digging into some of the reasons for why these studies succeeded and didn't succeed. So if you'd like to get more into the weeds, please do check that paper out. Um, but in that paper, we published what we hope to be the new algorithm for patients with large B-cell lymphoma, where previously for the past quarter century, the answer was, are you eligible for transplant or not? And now we're flipping the script to say, are you relapsed within one year or not, time-based, effectively saying, are you eligible for time-wise for CAR T-cell? So three-quarters of patients relapsed within the first year or refractory to treatment. And instead of historically being 50-50 to be eligible for cell therapy, half the patients being fit for stem cell transplant, half not, we think that it'll be more patients eligible for CAR T-cell, effectively a less toxic therapy, um, which I'll talk about in just a moment, why we think it's less toxic. Um, so we think it'll be about 70% of patients will be eligible for CAR T-cell, recruiting uh, maybe 20% more folks to receive what can be a curative therapy. Hopefully that'll account for an increase of our historical outcomes of about 10% of cure to now get up to 20% cure with this uh, great new option. For folks that relapse greater than one year, there's no data yet to support using CAR T-cell over transplant, and the FDA and the approval for AxiCell for second line specifically said within 12 months of first-line therapy, they followed the trial eligibility. So you cannot get AxiCell for your patient if they relapse 12 months and two days after their initial treatment. 
Um, that's thankfully rare that we have that tight of a timeline. But for folks that relapse a year and a half out, we try for stem cell transplant. We give salvage chemotherapy, and we think that the response rates will be likely higher there because patients are not refractory to chemotherapy. So hopefully we'll be able to cure a number of people there with, uh, with transplant or crossing over to some of the options in the middle that we kicked off when we talked about the NCCN guidelines as non-cell therapy options. So back to our patient. So looking at our 67-year-old uh, with double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as you recall, the patient had our EPOC, achieved a response, but then quickly afterwards had a progression event. Patient received rice, did not respond. Um, what are we going to do for this patient? This person needs CAR T-cell therapy, and because they're refractory to heavy-duty chemo, they need CAR T-cell therapy like yesterday. This person is not going to do very well with bridging chemotherapy and therefore needs to be sent immediately to a CAR T-cell center. As mentioned, the apheresis manufacturing timeline, the so-called vein-to-vein turnaround, takes weeks. And that's after the insurance approval may have already taken up to a week or two to delay things. So patients, if they are potentially candidates for CAR T-cell, need to be referred at the time you think about that, not a couple of weeks later once you finally get somebody to call you back at the CAR T-cell center. CAR T-cell therapy is reasonable for this patient um, because of the early relapse disease and the refractoriness to chemotherapy. This person historically would have had a high risk of death in the next couple of months, but may have up to a 40, 50% chance of long-term uh, risk of, uh, of being disease-free and potentially even cured uh, with CAR T-cell therapy. What's coming for CAR T-cells? We've talked about third line, and we've talked about second line. What about first line therapy for large B-cell lymphoma? Um, we were joking on the drive over here that um, if you know RCHOP chemotherapy for large B-cell lymphoma, you know three quarters of all you need to know about how to manage this disease. RCHOP has been around a long time. It's the standard first line therapy for the vast majority of patients. And the CHOP backbone part has been almost unchanged for 40 plus years. Rituxan added about 20 years ago. We've been prisoners of our own success in this setting. Well, could we do better with CAR T-cells? If it beats stem cell transplant, what about beating RCHOP? So our colleague at MD Anderson, Dr. Safa Nilapu, led uh, the Zuma-12 clinical trial, which was recently published in Nature Medicine, looking at a high-risk patient population, so folks that had baseline uh, demographic uh, and or disease-mediated factors, which would put them at a high risk of not doing well, um, and uh, had two cycles of chemotherapy and had a poor response. So basically had PET-AVID disease after two cycles of chemotherapy to then move over to receive AxiCell not waiting for first-line therapy to fail, but basically early switch therapy. 40 patients were enrolled. The overall response rate in this effectively primary refractory patient population was 90%. The CR rate was almost 80%. That dark blue is CR rate. So really high response rate and effectively what folks that didn't respond to any chemotherapy. And perhaps more impressively, it was quite durable. So at 12 months, the event-free survival rate is 72%, which is greater than what we saw in the second line. Um, and the overall survival rate at 12 months is 90.6%, which is great for patients that had high-risk disease at get-go and then didn't respond to chemo. So this is a pilot study, effectively. 40 patients is not going to change practice. However, stay tuned. There will be randomized studies in the first-line setting in the coming years looking at our chemotherapy versus CAR T-cell. So the story's not done yet. We're basically still building the story of how far the car can go. Um, talking about some data here at the ASCO 2022 meeting, um, our colleague Fred Locke from the Moffitt uh, team presented real-world outcomes for AxiCell by race and ethnicity. 
part of ASCO's mission has been to make sure that we are paying attention to all of our patients. And we've noted in clinical trials over the years that accrual of, of um, minority patients and patients of different, different ethnicities often is quite lacking in terms of the patients we actually see in the clinic. And so the investigators looked at a registry, effectively a post-approval safety study, to try and tease out differences in different um, backgrounds and found that response rates um, and durability of response are actually somewhat lower in patients of African descent versus patients who are Caucasian. Um, that may be related to the disease. That may also be related to access to care. And there are some other data presented at this meeting, not for CAR T cells, that when corrected for socioeconomic factors, effectively those differences disappear. So we think that potentially could be related to who actually gets to a CAR T cell center, who's referred and who's seen and, and receives the therapy, but potentially there could be some factors that go along with race influencing outcomes for access cell. I presented a poster earlier today looking at patients in the Zuma 7 trial who were over age 65. This is a group that sometimes is not referred for stem cell transplant because of concerns about toxicity. What we saw in this group was great outcomes, in fact, better outcomes, not powered to be compared against younger patients, but really impressive outcomes for the axis cell group and really poor outcomes for the chemotherapy group. Not surprisingly, patients who are in their 70s or 80s have a harder time with intensive chemotherapy than folks who are in their 40s or 50s. Um, but what we presented here, which was also quite novel, was the quality of life data. And a question we got earlier from the audience is, are there quality of life differences between transplant and CAR T cells? In this uh, presentation we had today, which will be a manuscript soon, what we saw was a very rapid recovery of quality of life outcomes in the CAR T cell group and a very long and, and uh, durable uh, decline of quality of life in the chemotherapy and transplant group implying that it not only is there better response rates, but better quality of life for our patients to receive this targeted therapy as opposed to sledgehammer chemotherapy. And then lastly, Dr. Kirsten presented some additional data looking at quality adjusted time without symptoms or toxicities, a different way of looking at quality of life outcomes in a poster this morning, uh, again, showing similar findings that not only do we see higher response rates, but we see additional benefit for our patients who receive CAR T cell in the sense that their quality of life, their perception of health their ability to get back to being a healthy person post-treatment is much greater when they receive a CAR T cell than chemotherapy. So take-home thoughts, CAR T cell therapy in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. It leads to durable remissions in a population where that historically was very difficult to do in about 40% of patients in the third-line setting, similar in the second-line setting uh, in terms of their outcomes in a refractory patient population. We have three FDA-approved products, AxiCell, which is approved in second line and beyond, TisaCell, approved in third line, and Lysacell, approved in third line with an asterisk up there. Stay tuned for an FDA review this summer that potentially may allow that to be used in second line. Additional clinical trials are undergoing uh, as we speak to assess CAR T-cell therapy in the frontline setting, and hopefully we can continue to chip away at the 1970s chemotherapy of RCHOP by using these awesome new powerful therapies. And I'm gonna use this opportunity to look down at some questions from the audience. And I'll see that the first question is, will CAR T-cell therapy replace standard RCHOP chemo? I, I just told you, I think that's got a really good chance of, of doing that. This was, question was submitted 37 minutes ago. So whoever asked that was reading our mind that we were gonna talk about first line therapy. That will take a, a randomized study to do that, of course. Having incredible data, 89% overall response rate, 90% survival at one year, 
are very impressive, but single-arm studies often ha have difficulty holding up when it's in a randomized trial. We did see in Zuma 7 that randomized trials with CAR T-cells have shown superior to chemotherapy uh, already, and that's likely to be the same in a high-risk frontline patient population. Um, we had a question about the patient experience compared to uh, transplant versus CAR T-cell. That is something that we um, have published an abstract looking at quality of life on Zuma 7. Dr. El Sawi uh, presented this at the ASH 2021 meeting. And then my poster today, if you look on the um, ASCO website, digs into some of the details of quality of life instruments showing a huge advantage for CAR T-cell therapy, both in terms of speed of recovery and actually doing better than you were doing before you received the CAR T-cell, taking care of some of the disease factors versus standard of care chemotherapy having long-term quality of life issues. Um, and then there's a question of, are you now using NGS MRD to make decisions about allo-BMT post-CAR T-cell? That may be a question for the ALO group because we don't do a lot of allo-CAR T-cell or allo-transplant uh, for folks. It's a good point. I'm going to toss that question over in just a second. But what do we do for large cell patients if they have a CR? Is there any role for consolidation or any role for additional treatment to try and mitigate the risk? No. All of those data for those plateaus are effectively one-shot CAR T-cell therapy, a single infusion, and we don't reinfuse. That was fascinating to hear about the early loss of uh, the B-cell aplasia being a high risk. For patients with lymphoma, there are no data for reinfusions, um, and that's something that um, is, is unique to the leukemia space thus far for predictors of, of lack of response. For large cell lymphoma, we've tried to use some uh, targeted therapies to try and resurrect the CAR T cells if the patient is having progression, but not at a flow cytometry level risk of progression, actually radiographic prediction. So maybe speak a little bit in terms of what you might use to take a patient to a consolidative transplant. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think there's a couple of factors that play into it. One is um, the product that's used and the persistence of that product. So as I mentioned, the, the CD28 products tend to have shorter persistence, which in lymphoma does not seem to um, really play out in terms of risk of relapse. But in ALL, it does in that, um, it, you know, there may be something to the fact that ALL is treated by many years of multi-agent chemotherapy that you really do need that maintenance of surveillance for some period of time. Um, and so patients who um, receive a short-lived product are, are often going to a consolidative transplant or in... Um, in some of uh, the products that where where we have seen some response to reinfusion, in, including with um, Tisicel, we have done reinfusions and have seen um, that that can extend remission in a um, in a significant fraction of patients. In terms of when to go to allo uh, transplant, so we do use that persistence. But the NGSMRD is, um, you know, new findings that are playing into it a bit more. Um, I think we are learning more as we're tracking this in the real-world setting. On those studies, um, what was looked at were really specific sequences that seem to be very uh, specific to residual disease. We're learning when you can get the broad range of NGSMRD that there may be some sequences 
um, that are not actually specific to the leukemia and may reflect um, early precursor B cells, normal precursors coming back. And so I think we're, we're learning to track that um, and to see if, if that is something that is really reflective of disease and then that is a patient that I would think about sending to allo uh, transplant if they have persistent NGSMRD or rising. Excellent. Thank you. And then a question I asked you earlier, I'll ask myself about baseline factors that might correlate with response and or toxicity. For patients with large B-cell lymphoma, there is a correlation with disease bulk. So if a patient has very bulky disease, if they have a high disease burden, there is a higher risk both of significant toxicities with CRS and with neurologic toxicities. There's not yet any correlative data of that, um, any data that correlates that with risk of lack of long-term durable response. So we don't really have predictors for which patients are likely to get a durable CR from an autologous CAR T-cell for large B-cell lymphoma. Um, we're working on that. There's a lot of data looking at both the product itself to figure out what markers, including different checkpoints that could be targeted that might be relevant, um, as well as looking at the circulating tumor DNA to try and identify patients that are already having an uptick of disease prior to any radiographic progression. And studies are being planned to try and target these factors to try and improve these long-term plateaus of 40-ish percent to try and get that to where we'd like it to be much higher. Um, but for toxicity purposes, we still proceed if somebody has a high disease burden, but we basically tell the patient to buckle up because it may be a bumpy ride. All right, wonderful. Well, let's move to the next chapter. Okay, so large cell lymphoma is what I focus my research efforts on, but CAR T-cell is approved in other indications and is being looked at in clinical trials and uh, multiple different subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So same story we said before, a patient's identified and referred and look for long-term follow-up. In mantle cell lymphoma, we saw an update today of this data and there's publication coming in uh, the JCO for a long-term follow-up of the Zuma 2 trial. This was looking at patients with relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma um, who received similar construct uh, to what we heard about for brexacapagene in the ALL population. And the response rates and durability response look awesome. This is something that has a response rate of 91%, nearly 70% achieve a complete response, and that is a plateau for a disease that we know historically has had frequent relapses. Um, the update from Dr. Wong is published in the JCO online today as well as presented at the poster today, which shows further durable response. Looking at lysocell, this has been evaluated in the Transcend study in patients with mantle cell lymphoma as well. And here we see a response rate that is equally awesome, 84%, and a CR rate of 66%. This looks really impressive. It's not yet FDA approved for mantle cell lymphoma, but that may be coming with these great data. And then moving into follicular lymphoma, which is another disease which tends to respond to lots of things but comes back and comes back and comes back, these are data from Zuma 5, which led to an FDA approval of AxiCell for patients with relapsed follicular lymphoma. And the median follow-up of 17 months, the duration of response was not reached. 64% of patients had ongoing response. This is in a relatively bad um, disease population of, of refractory follicular lymphoma, which often behaves more like a large cell lymphoma. So that is a very meaningful long-term durable response. And it's not yet clear. We need additional follow-up to see if we're curing people with these indolent lymphomas. But I think the answer is likely we will have a subset of patients that are cured here. Um, this is further follow-up in this follicular lymphoma cohort with the overall survival on the right-hand side of your screen. That looks pretty good to me. That's uh, north of 80% with relatively long-term follow-up. So clearly 
a winner for patients with chemotherapy refractory follicular lymphoma. Elara was uh, just led to the approval this past month of tisogen leclusol in patients with follicular lymphoma, having a high response rate, a CR rate of nearly two-thirds of patients, and the duration of response um, is shown on the slide here is very impressive in a highly aggressive uh, version of follicular lymphoma. Patients were refractory to prior therapy in the majority of patients on this trial. So tisogen leclusol has been approved for patients with follicular lymphoma and perhaps looks better than it does in large cell lymphoma in terms of this event-free survival curve. Um, overall survival, similar to what I showed you for axicel and follicular patients, this is really incredible. Um, and the progression-free survival is also very impressive. So for, for high-risk disease, we saw a great durable response for both axicel and tisacel patients with follicular. Both of these are now approved uh, by the FDA. In CLL, we've seen the Transcend study look at lysocell in this context. These were patients that had high-risk disease, had already had prior BTK therapy, had multiple prior treatments, and effectively didn't have great options to continue to manage what sometimes can be a chronic illness. This was not chronic illness CLL. This was aggressive refractory disease. And they received lysocell with the same setup we've seen on prior trials. And here we see a durable response in the majority of patients and the progression-free survival, also very impressive. So this is not yet approved, but the potential for this with additional therapy, perhaps a combination study, uh, to try and further improve outcomes long-term for patients with CLL may be on the table. So take-home thoughts from these other subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphoma for mantle cell, follicular, and CLL. For mantle cell, this is practice changing. This is something that has directly impacted our practice at MD Anderson and at all CAR T-cell centers. For folks that have uh, BTK inhibitor uh, prior exposure and have not had a long-term response, we didn't have great options. That's a, that's a disease population that tends to do quite poorly in terms of response to next therapy. Brexacel has been a game changer for those patients. Um, and it says, regardless of use of prior BTK, I have had some insurance refusals of this uh, for folks that have had, not had BTK, although that's not included in the label. So we always push back if somebody tells us you have to have had a BTK prior to receive Brexacel. Um, Lysacel, not yet approved, but stay tuned. I think that has the potential to be approved in this space. For follicular, we have approvals of Axicel and Tisacel, um, which both look awesome in this context. Uh, safety profile is probably better than what we saw for large B-cell lymphoma. And the potential of having a plateau, we still need further follow-up, but I do think we're likely curing at least some of the patients who've received this cell therapy and what has historically been a relapsing and remitting disease. And then lastly, we just highlighted some of the data in CLL. Lysacel has a durable response, although perhaps not quite as great as the other diseases. Um, and we're, we're hopeful that we can get approvals in the future with CLL. And because we did questions um, before we got to that part, I think we will likely move on to the next section, which is going to be led by Dr. Karina Patel uh, from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Patel. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so we'll talk about multiple myeloma now and a different target, BCMA. All right. So in multiple myeloma, you know, we've always sort of been envious of our leukemia and lymphoma colleagues when it comes to immunotherapies. We've had our image, which is great, but to get our first, you know, monoclonal antibody is around 2014. We thought DARA is going to be like our rituximab, and it sort of is. Um, and after that, it kind of exploded in terms of CD38 was a great target. Um, so we have another CD38, esotuximab, but then BCMA really 
sort of change things for us. We tried CD19 for myeloma. It didn't work so well. Um, we, we couldn't find those stem cells of myeloma stem cells that had CD19 in it necessarily. But uh, B-cell maturation antigen, um, we, we know majority of patients have that expression. And so we had belantamab as our first it's an ADC, but also works um, immunogenically. So we had our first ADC that was approved. That's BCMA targeting. And then, of course, um, idacaptogene or idacel um, just last year, February 2021. So it's been about a year and a couple of months that we've had it. And then um, just recently, February of 2022, we finally got our second CAR-T uh, for BCMA, uh, siltocell. So again, BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen, mostly in plasma cells, normal and um, myeloma cells, um, but also some uh, late B cells. And when we got it, we ended up putting everything we possibly could to BCMA. So we have antibodies, we have the ADC, we have bispecific antibodies, um, the CAR-Ts, and then, of course, the bispecific T-cell engagers. Um, and there's NK CARs um, that are going to be using BCMA as well. So starting with our case, um, Alex uh, has treatment refractory multiple myeloma. So this is a patient diagnosed at 64 years old. Um, he had RIS as stage one disease, so standard risk, and had monosomy 13, again, standard. Um, back then, we gave RVD induction, so he got standard of care with transplant um, consolidation and then rev maintenance, and, um, and he had a CR. And he kept going with rub maintenance. He didn't stop. So continuous therapy. And about four and a half years later, um, he gets progression of disease biochemically. And now he's on Dara Palm Dex. Again, gets a CR and does really well with it um, and has three years. Before now, he starts having plasma cytomas. So L2 plasma cytoma needs radiation um, for pain and then starts getting a rising M protein. So now he's put on CAR cytoxin dex. Um, he gets a VGPR, has some prolonged cytopenias from the cytoxin, um, progresses after two years, uh, and now goes on Selenexor. Um, he has, with, with Velcade. So he has stable disease, but then within six months progresses and has some hyponatremia and thrombocytopenia. But relatively has good functional status, PS of one. So, you know, how many lines of treatment has Alex received? This four lines or more of treatment, it makes it a little bit tricky, but he's had four lines. Um, and then what therapies is he eligible for? And so everything that we just talked about, the ADC and CAR-Ts, a standard of care he's eligible for, and then, of course, all our clinical trials for our bispecifics, et cetera. So about Idacel. So this was our first CAR-T in the U.S. Um, that we started having patients go on to at the NIH initially and then um, in a phase one study. So th basically the response rate um, was 89.5% and CR rate of 36.9% for this trial. Mind you, DARA is a single agent in a subset of patients who are relapse refractory. The response rate was 30%. And our... our Threshold has always been 30% to get FDA approval, so 90%, much, much higher, um, and to have CRs at this, low, at this um, level. So 450 million dosing was the, um, basically the, the target. Um, so this went to the phase two KARMA study. And for myeloma, all of our CARs so far have 401BB as the uh, co-stem. So this was the pivotal phase um, two study, and again, had patients had to have greater than three prior lines of therapy, um, had to have an IMID PI, CD38 antibody, and had to be refractory to the last therapy um, for this. And again, most of these patients got the higher dose, but um, there was still a little bit of dose escalation with 150, 300, and 450. 
So in terms of response, the primary endpoint was a response rate of greater than 50% and a secondary um, CR rate of greater than 10%. They met that. So here, the overall response rate was 73%. And as you can see on the right, the, the higher the dose, so at the 450, which is the third bar, the response rate was 81%, um, and then the CR rate was 33%. So the median time to response, one month, um, which is quicker than most other myeloma therapies. Median time to CR, 2.8 months, uh, mostly because of M protein takes a little bit longer to completely go away. Um, but median follow-up for these patients was 13.3 months. And so here, you kind of can look at the PFS and OS based on cell dose. And so again, that blue line on the left is the 450 million cells, um, and median PFS there is 12.1 months. So the lower dose cells um, patients didn't do as well. And then survival, actually, we see patients who had three lines of therapy or greater than four, um, and survival has actually been relatively well at 12 months of 78%. Um, and what we've seen is Unfortunately, we also have a plateau envy um, compared to our lymphoma doctors, but even when patients relapse, their disease is different and they actually start responding to therapies that they had before. So this is why we've seen a survival increase for patients who've had CAR-T. And so there's been data with um, both um, products that have shown that. So there's been some um, you know, other studies going on with uh, IDASEL, including um, correlates to CR in, in patients that have relapsed refractory myeloma. Again, higher-risk disease gets great responses, but lower than standard-risk disease, so patients with standard risk tend to do better. Um, and in talking about toxicity, um, patients who have a lot of disease going in end up with higher rates of CR, um, not so much ICANS, but um, for CRS. Um, and, and prolonged cytopenias is actually what we see as our big issue. Um, we've had quality of life um, surveys as well, and these patients are patients that have had treatments you know, pretty much their entire lives. Um, by the time they get to fourth, fifth line, a lot of them had treatments for five plus years. And so quality of life has been really improved for patients who are you know, myelomas controlled and um, not on treatment. It's a, it's a big um, plus for our patients. And then we have these other studies that are, um, have actually completed enrollment. So CARMA-2 was for our high-risk patients in second line. CARMA-3 is the phase three, looking at triple-class exposed patients, standard of care versus CAR-T, and we just submitted that data to the FDA, so hopefully at ASH we'll have some updates. And again, we're looking at patients in CARMA-4 um, at early high-risk disease in first line. And then CARMA-7 is interesting because we're actually trying to use maintenance with a cell mod, um, iberdamide after CAR-T to see if we can improve expansion and persistence. So that'll be some interesting data in the future. And then coming to cell to cell. So again, this was just approved February, end of February, 2022. And what's different about this um, car is it's two epitopes of BCMA, and it actually uses LAMA as the vector um, because it's bigger. So you can actually put two vectors in, or two um, SCFVs in there. And the cell dose is a lot lower. It's about 50 to 70 million um, cells per patient. And I think it has to do with this. But um, basically, in Cartitude 1, these were patients, um, again, had three prior lines of therapy, including a PI image and CD38, or had to be double refractory to PIs and IMIDs. And this, when we saw this, I, every time I say this, it's still surreal. These were average six lines of therapy for patients and a 98% response rate. Um, there's one patient who didn't have a response. And so just phenomenal data. And then you look at the stringent CR rate, 80.4%. This rivals our upfront trials, like our Griffin trial, where we have induction with four drugs, transplant consolidation. So um, to see this in relapse refractory patients was sort of um, shocking in a good way. Um, and 91.8% of patients actually had MRD negativity, at least a 10 to the minus fifth. 
And we know that even in relapsed refractory patients, sustained MRD negativity um, actually means prolonged uh, survival. And then median PFS, um, we actually don't have a median PFS. So when they looked at this data, um, the, at, um, 12, 20, at two years, it's about 71% of patients are still uh, progression-free, which I think is coming up in a little bit. So then CARTITUDE, the two-year follow-up that they had, um, basically, again, just showed the stringent CR rates are 83%. Um, first response is within the first month. Best response, 2.6 again. And then CR better is at 2.9 months. And then duration of response not reached. And so here, um, the PFS, so this is what I was talking about, that it's not been reached. And they looked at patients, all patients in green. And in blue, it's those who got that stringent CR. Um, and there is a difference, but it's 71% uh, versus 60%, 66%. We're hoping that curve will give us a little bit of a plateau. I'm not holding my breath, but maybe we'll have a few patients that are technically cured. So here, CARTITUDE 2 has been presented a couple of times, um, and is again presented here, but this is actually earlier lines um, of patients. So cohort A is a lenalidomide refractory patient, so probably had maintenance continued. Um, and basically one to three prior lines of therapy. So a little bit earlier. And then cohort B is patients who have an early relapse after initial therapy. So technically, not, ne not necessarily high-risk cytogenetics, but you've relapsed within the first 18 months of initial therapy or 12 months of transplant, um, if you had a transplant and you had to have a PI or IMID. And so again, just phenomenal responses. You can't really beat a 97% response rate. Um, so the response rates, are they, they rival this. It's 95% or higher. Um, so really, we're looking at the PFS data, hopefully in the near future, um, to see if, you know, hopefully you can get better PFS by doing it earlier. And so then there's a couple of other, I won't go too much into this, but there's a couple of other um, uh, products that are out there that, that have been talked about. So BB21217 is... Basically, um, IDASEL, but the cells have been cultured in a PI3 kinase inhibitor to make them more dedifferentiated into stem cell memory type cells, which um, seem to do better in terms of expansion as well as persistence. Um, and they've seen great you know, uh, translational data with that, and the PFS was actually a little bit longer. However, um, I believe they actually aren't moving forward with this anymore, but the science um, does help us realize that having better T cells is gonna give you better um, expansion and responses. And then there's another, a couple of other trials that are still ongoing um, that are about to become pivotal phase twos. And so CT103A is another trial that we're taking, we're um, a part of, and um, just the, the CAR construct is a little bit unique in that it's fully human, single chain, um, and less immunogenicity. And so originally they had 13 centers in China and just you know have great expansion and responses so far. And I just put it all together here, but, um, Big difference is, of course, IDASIL and BB21217. It's about the same number of cells. It's the same construct. Um, and then Sultacel as well as CT103A, of course, are they're, they're requiring less cells in general. So a little bit different in terms of expansion kinetics, too. So response rates, again, um, you know, 70 to 98% is pretty phenomenal. PFS is different for these different. Um, we can't compare them. They weren't exactly the same patients. But um, I will say not having reached at two years for Sultacel is pretty impressive for us. So coming back to the case, is Alex a candidate for CAR T cell therapy? 
and what's next. So in an ideal world, yes, um, Alex should be going to CAR-T therapy and um, he'd be eligible and it'd be great to get a slot for him. But elephant in the room, um, as many people probably know in myeloma, we have so many more patients than the number of slots we can get. And so we are working on trying to improve that. Now having a second product has helped and it's doubled for most centers but most centers get maybe two slots a month, maybe three for myeloma patients. Um, we are now getting five slots at MD Anderson, which is great, but I have about 10 patients coming in for CAR-T a month. So we tend to do is actually get approvals at that third relapse, um, the third or fourth line, and put them on the list, start getting insurance approvals, and then as soon as that patient needs it, we we try to get them a slot. What we do is every time we get slots, we actually go through that list and see where our patients are. Have they relapsed? Are they, you know, can they stop therapy right now? Who's going to be ideal? It's, it's a little crazy um, in our world right now, but we're all working together to hopefully make it better. And again, the more slots we get, um, hopefully it won't be as hard. So the general principles for CAR-T, just to go into a little bit specifics, again, the dosing is a little bit different. Toxicities for the two products are different. So with Idacel, day one, you get CRS. So most of these patients are admitted for cell infusion. And usually by day four or five, they're not having any issues. So we actually let them go after that. And we follow them outpatient. With Siltacel, the expansion happens later. Um, and so CRS usually happens around day seven. So we're actually gonna try to infuse these patients outpatient then admit them to when CRS will happen and then bring them back outpatient after that. So a lot of centers are doing that right now. Um, biggest things, we avoid steroids right before. Um, in myeloma, for our bridging, we use steroids. So it, it, it's a little different, but before apheresis, we avoid steroids. Um, and then of course, before infusion, we try to avoid steroids for at least one to two weeks. Um, they do get pre-medicated with acetaminophen and antihistamines. Um, we give IVIG for a lot of our patients to help them through with infections. Um, and of course, there's our big REMS programs. And so most of these patients are getting lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Again, for our center, most of those patients are outpatient for that. And then we decide on cell infusion based on the product. So coming back to that CRS, so again, the median onset's very different between Idacel and Siltacel. Um, the, the grade three for neutropenia, um, we, we do see in both products, um, a little bit more so in, in the trial with Idacel than Siltacel at 41% versus 10%. Um, but we do see some patients even three, six months later that are still pretty cytopenic, so we have to watch them pretty closely. Um, the one other toxicity with Siltacel is this delayed neurotoxicity that they saw, and it was more of Parkinsonianism and some you know, per serious peripheral neuropathy, um, beyond Bray-like. Um, there was, in, in the label for um, Idacel, we also have a patient with Parkinsonianism. So BCMA is interesting. Um, it is actually found in some of the nervous system, but at such low levels that most things don't cause problems, but we've seen it in some bispecifics, um, some of these strange neurotoxicities. Um, and, and again, Siltacel, there was 9% of patients that actually got grade three or higher. And what they've done is that patients who actually have less disease going in are not likely to get this. So that was their strategy for their cartitude two and four to try to debulk patients. Um, there has been one patient that, that still got it, but again, a lot lower 
rate um, now. So that, and it happens after day 40. So after the patient's gone home, that's when you know we, we really work with our local um, oncologists or community doctors. And for us, we actually have a neuro-onc um, doctor we're working with so that if anything happens, um, we could do a virtual visit or just make sure that that patient gets back to us to see what we can do. And it can be reversible with like steroids, IVIG, et cetera, but um, the earlier we catch it, the better. So for us, we're actually going to have patients, you know, um, right hand right at home, make sure their caregivers can watch it and monitor it. So that if there's any changes, we can get notified earlier. So again, coordination among multidisciplinary care teams is key. And again, very um, specific side effects that we see. So we do have some patients that can get HLH. Usually that occurs early when they're with us. But the cytopenia is um, COVID-19. We've had some patients um, unfortunately die from COVID-19 after CAR-T. Um, and this delayed neurotoxicity. And we see patients with CMV and other infections that most people don't think about. So if someone has fevers, I usually do that whole workup in that first six months, especially after CAR-T. So, you know, who should I refer? Basically, all patients who have relapsed refractory myeloma can be considered potential CAR-T candidates. Our toxicities are actually very different um, and, and much more tolerable for the most part. I think people thought that myeloma patients were going to fall apart um, trying to do things like this. Um, and I understand why with renal failure, bone issues, all these things, but they've actually done really well. So our oldest patients have been you know, in their 80s, 83, and done really, really well. We've had renal failure patients now that we have a standard of care. Um, but, but the toxicity is different than transplant. So really, if, if someone can handle one to two liters of fluid when they have CRS, that patient likely can get through CAR-T. And so again, early referral um, helps get us on the list faster so that we can actually get the patient the CAR-T when they need it. So thinking outside the box, you know, does this, this is just my thoughts, but again, we can't cure myeloma yet, but how, how are these new immune therapies going to help us? And, you know, again, for us, myeloma is sort of like follicular lymphoma diffuse large B-cell in one, right? Um, it's acute and chronic leukemia in one. We have patients who are standard risk, respond to everything 25 years out, they're still doing great. And then I have patients who are ultra high risk and within you know, two months of transplant, they're relapsing and within two years, they've gone through everything we possibly have. And so that's sort of where I'm showing that, you know, the, the patients who are doing well probably need less therapy, but hopefully are the ones we can actually cure um, with some of these things like CAR-Ts. And then those patients that are really high risk, I mean, maybe there's some that we actually will need to do allogeneic transplants for, or at least multi, you know, antigen CAR-T and, and other uh, maintenance after. So with that, um, I'll talk a little bit about, um, I have a minute left. So we actually did a real-world um, collaboration with Moffitt and 10 other centers um, that was presented today. So I'll show you a little bit of um, data on that and then post your discussion on correlative analysis. Again, for us right now, because we don't have slots for everybody, we want to make sure we get our patients that can manufacture those slots, because if they don't manufacture, that means that patient's not going to get it, but it also means that someone else could have had that slot. So when, when they're so precious right now, they're looking at different clinical as well as um, some translational data to see if there's ways to predict who's going to get cells that are going to um, actually expand, et cetera. So what we're trying to figure out, which we don't have that data yet, is which patients don't manufacture. Thankfully, we haven't had too many manufacturing issues, but if the cells aren't going to expand, they're not going to manufacture, well, those are the patients we really shouldn't be taking to CAR-T. So hopefully in the future, we'll be able to validate some of that data with the real-world data. 
but here's our real-world experience. So we had about 190, I think, six patients who have been apheresed um, and 156 or so that were treated. Um, it's a little small, but basically it's comparing the KARMA trial to our real world. Um, and we probably had a little bit more maybe maybe sicker patients in the sense that there's more extramedullary disease. Um, the real-world patients had prior BCMA therapy, about 22% of them, which was not allowed on Karma. And um, more patients were pentarefractory, you know, 80% or 60%, I think, versus 33. So again, the response rates have been very comparable. So the response rates, again, you know, are in the 80%, 81% for the 450 million dose the dose for these patients on average was about 415 million, and the response rate was 86% at day 90, so that's overall response. So we, we had great overall responses um, and deeper responses as time went on. And then in the multivariate analysis, interestingly, the prior anti-BCMA therapy was actually the one thing that um, the response rates were a little bit lower for. It was only about 15% lower, so around 70%. Um, we don't have the PFS data here, but the PFS data will come out at ASH, and we're going to have more details on that prior BCMA. But um, PFS was actually a lot less. So here, when you look at all patients, the PFS was about 8.9 months. So again, much better than anything else we've had in multiple myeloma for these really relapsed refractory patients. But I do think some of the BC, prior BCMA therapies um, uh, is probably bringing that down. And these were the sickest patients. So the fact that they did really well toxicity-wise and still got this PFS, I think is pretty Im impressive. And, and again, survival seems to be um, improved because they got that. So take-home thoughts, um, BCMA, phenomenal antigen. We're excited we have it in myeloma. But sequencing does matter, and we have to learn more about that now. We try to avoid alkylators, especially cytoxan, prior to CAR T-cell manufacturing. Um, I think possibly PIs, proteasome inhibitors, and that's part of that BMS data. Um, we want to refer patients early. Again, the, the earlier they go, the less complications they have trying to get to their CAR-T. And, you know, we, we do have some amazing responses that we're seeing, and we're excited about uh, moving it up forward. But I think access um, is, a, is a really big issue right now that hopefully we can improve on. That I'll stop. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Patel. In 30 seconds, if you can, with a number of BCMA options, how do you think about choosing between those options, and are there patient factors that might alter that decision process? How do, how do we pick with all these great options? Now, that's a great question, and I think none of us know. But basically, it's whatever I have available for the patient when they need it. So my, my, all, my top is always CAR-T if I can get it for them. Um, and again, because of that quality of life piece, any patient of mine that's had CAR-T, even if they relapse a year or two years later, they're like, can I get another CAR-T? Because they just feel so great not being on all these therapies constantly. So I think we have to take that into consideration. But again, it's making sure all our patients get access. So we are going to have a bispecific that comes out you know, by the FDA approved hopefully in August. So I think knowing the sequencing and hopefully having more data to help us um, to say, should CAR-T go first or should bispecifics, eventually that will be really, really relevant. But right now it's whatever I can get, um, you know, for that patient. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you to both of our speakers tonight. This has been an excellent form. I've learned a lot. I am so tunnel vision into lymphoma, but I learned a ton about leukemia and myeloma tonight. So thanks to both of you and hopefully the audience benefited as well. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NMF 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, 
Kite, a Gilead company, Legend Biotech, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.